The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the 10th chapter. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. A man comes running up to Jesus with a pressing question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of an obvious question. Maybe it's one we'd like to hear the answer to. What must we do to inherit eternal life? But it's a misguided question. It's even maybe a little bit silly because, after all, what do we do to get an inheritance? Do you schmooze Grandpa and Aunt Eliza and butter them up in hopes of being remembered in the will? I mean, maybe, but does being nice and doing favors guarantee a place in the will? No, not necessarily. 
The point of an inheritance is that we don't do anything to get an inheritance. An inheritance is based on a relationship. We inherit because of the relationship we have with the person who leaves it. Because of who we are, not because of what we do. In fact, in Louisiana, where I come from originally, um, children receive a portion of their parents' estates, whether they've been nasty to their parents or not, simply because they are children. And they cannot be disinherited under the Napoleonic Code, or at least they couldn't be. I don't know, they may have changed that by now, because a lot of people didn't like it very much. But God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. We inherit it because we are God's children, not because of what we do in this life or in the next. The man asks, is this all there is maybe, or is there something more? Maybe that's the question behind the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life. And the second question behind the question is how can I be sure that I, it's for me, that I am included. I think it's a game we play trying to uh, earn our inheritance. It, we like thinking we're in control, you know, that if we have the power somehow to just check off the list of requirements and then we're in and we don't have to really depend on God for that because, you know, well, we earned it. But we can't earn it. Jesus plays along with the game for a little while. He's like, okay, if you want to ask a question like that, if you want to earn the kingdom of heaven, well, then tell me, have you kept the commandments? You know them. Do not murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not defraud your neighbor. Don't covet more than, it's more than just wanting, but it's actually doing something to obtain your neighbor's stuff. By unfair means, don't do that. Honor your father and your mother, Jesus says. And we kind of tune out. We go into automatic pilot and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know all of that. We get it. Get on with it. And then the man looks at Jesus and he says, I've kept all of these since my youth. And maybe he has. He's lived a good life. He's doing really well. He's treating other people fairly and justly. He hasn't defrauded anybody by outward appearance. It looks like this young man has it all together. And the fact that he's rich just proves his good efforts, right? God has rewarded him. So yes, he tells Jesus, I've kept all these commandments. But if we're paying attention and if we're counting, then we'll note that Jesus only listed seven. There are three commandments that Jesus left out. The first three, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And if you remember catechism class, if you were ever in one, maybe you'll remember or in Sunday school being taught that the first three commandments are about our relationship with God and this last seven commandments are about our relationships with one another. So the young man has kept good relationships with his neighbors and family, but Jesus is seeing right through him. This is where we might expect a lecture or a rebuke. 
But when the man stands there looking into the face of Jesus Christ, the incarnate face of God, the look is not one of judgment, it's a look of love. Jesus looks at him with love, it says. Can you imagine it? Not a disapproving face or a scowling face. Jesus looks at him with love, not a face that judges him for what he may have done or left undone. No, it says Jesus looks at him with love and says, you lack only one thing. What he maybe doesn't have is that relationship with God that's based on humility and the awareness that our relationship with God is dependent upon God's love for us and nothing else. He doesn't have that relationship with God, the relationships that's the basis of the inheritance. The relationship where the kingdom is the gift because God is choosing to give it, because God claims us as children and not for any other reason than that. But the judgment comes with an opportunity. Sell what you own and give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. Hmm. Then you will have treasure in heaven, Jesus said. Which is where we get distracted, I think. You know, with that, it sounds like Jesus is asking the guy to give up everything, right? Go and sell your stuff. He says, uh, um, he doesn't say that, though. He doesn't say sell everything, does he? I mean, we picture in our minds, the young man is supposed to go and sell everything, but it doesn't say that. It just says, go and sell what you own. It doesn't say everything you own. And then it says, come and follow me. And in order to do that, he's going to have to take to heart whatever it is that's standing between himself and the relationship that he could have with God, that inherited relationship that was his all along. What's in the way between him and God in that relationship? And apparently it's stuff. A comedian, George Carlin, used to do a routine about stuff. I don't know if you remember it. He makes us laugh at ourselves. Comedians are good at doing that. You know, make us see the truth the painful truth by making us laugh at the obvious and our obsession with our possessions. Carlin says, what are our houses after all? It's just a place for us to store our stuff. We make a pile of stuff and we put a roof over it. And then when we get too much stuff, we need a bigger house for our stuff. And then when we run out of room in our house, well, we rent storage for our stuff. And there's a whole industry designed to help us with our stuff. And when we travel, we take our stuff along with us. Not all of our stuff, just enough of our stuff to make us feel at home. But we never really feel at home because other people's stuff is in the way of our stuff. There's no place for our stuff. He asked, you ever notice how our stuff is always good stuff, but other people's stuff is junk? Where did they get this stuff? Pretty soon we have stuff all over the place, and we have a hard time keeping track of all of our stuff. I got stuck with the role of keeper of the family stuff, which means anytime anybody died or didn't want to hold on to the stuff they were attached to, they passed it on to me. So I have all the plaques, the diplomas, the photo albums, the, the letters, the mementos, the vital records, the yearbooks, the front framed diplomas, all of it, it's in my basement. 
Someday my son's going to get it because that's what we do with our stuff. We pass it on to our children. Carlin then ends his routine with a confession. He says, I started out having all this stuff and now this stuff has me. Now, sometimes the stuff that stands between us and God and God's desire for relationship with us is actual physical stuff. That can get in the way like the junk in the basement or our electronic gain collection or the money in our hedge funds, whatever. All that stuff can be a barrier, but not always. Jesus didn't tell every rich person he met that they had to get rid of and sell all their stuff. It's not always wealth that stands in the way. Sometimes it's the other stuff. Like the stuff we learned when we were little that makes us think as adults that we don't need to study the Bible anymore or go to adult forums or anything like that because, hey, we already know all that stuff. Stuff can be long-held convictions and attitudes about life that we aren't willing to examine. That stuff can get in the way too. Stuff is whatever gives us a false sense of security. Sometimes our stuff is just old family baggage inherited through no fault of our own. Stuff can be anything, though, anything that stands in the way of life with God. That's the plight of the man in the gospel. Since his youth, he says, I've kept the commandments. And he has. He's been a good guy. He's tried. He hasn't defrauded anybody. He's honored his parents. He's good to his neighbors and friends. He's always been honest and fair. He's helped the poor. But what he lacks is this primary relationship with God that recognizes that he can't earn God's love, but he gets it as an inheritance. Eternal life, a future that is not captive to stuff or the anxiety that comes with it. Which is probably why we came here today. At least some of us. I think it's why I'm here. We knew we were lacking something. We needed assurance, some words of promise and hope. We kind of hoped we'd run into Jesus. And that when we did, in spite of our failure to keep God's commandments, that Jesus would look at us with love. And he does. Imagine it. Jesus' face, the incarnate face of God, gazing into your face. And there is no shame. And there is nothing to fear. Because when you look into the face of Jesus, you see that you are loved. And the love comes with an invitation. And the invitation is also a promise. Come, he says, follow me. Be with me always in the end of time. But do us both a favor, leave that other stuff behind.